I was about 11 years old. Uh, the first time I did the thing you do when you're a young kid growing up in church, uh, I signed up for the mission trip, going with a bunch of other students and with my family. And I was excited because we were going to Mexico. And as much as anything I heard, there might be a little trip to the beach along the way. And I wanted to go to a different place and kind of experience that. I don't know that my heart was all that right uh, in wanting to go and serve and, and to do some mission work uh, down on the border. Uh, but it's one of those things where if you've ever engaged missionally, one of our values here where you say, all right, God, I'm not going to live my life about me. I'm not going to live the life for me. Instead, I want to go and to serve you. If you've ever done that, you've probably experienced this where you find out that in the midst of you offering yourself and saying, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to step out here and allow you to use me. Um, I was far more blessed than any level of blessing I would have brought to anyone. Well, I thought, I was going to be a missionary and a servant, I was the one who was ministered to. Like God really, really blessed me um, in the midst of that trip. Uh, I've been on many trips since then, and it's always the same. I walk away from an exhausting week uh, feeling completely full because I've been poured into. When I was 11, the, the experience stands out to me because it was the first time that I had this recognition that things in America may be just a little bit off. Like the life that we live may not be exactly what God had intended. So a couple of realizations that people often have uh, when they go into a third world country, uh, the first thing that is very apparent to you is you look at people who seemingly have nothing. And you look at hunger, you look at disease, you look at suffering. I remember being a kid and thinking, how could an entire family live in that tiny little house? I remember thinking, like they only eat one meal a day. And I recognized very quickly that um, they didn't have a lot of the things that we have. But the second realization is probably more powerful than the first. And it's that, that they had something that I didn't. I remember standing there as an 11-year-old kid, and I, I look into the eyes of these other kids. We played soccer with a junky old ball, and we didn't have goals or lines or any of those things. And I'm looking at those young kids and recognizing, and I see uh, in their eyes that they have a joy, that they have a happiness, they have a peace, they have a contentedness that I didn't have. While I spent a lot of my time as a young kid thinking about the things that I needed and whether or not I had the cool silk shirt that everyone was wearing back then, I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, about my, my house and comparing what I had against everyone else's. What I, I didn't have was that same level of contentedness and happiness and pure joy that I saw among these other young kids that I was able to play with. I had a lot of things that they didn't, but they certainly had something that I didn't, and it was joy and peace and a contentedness that I, uh, honestly, I've struggled since I was 11 years old to attain to, to, to get to where I have that level of contentedness. We live in a culture that has bought a lie. We live in a culture where the enemy has come in and he's convinced us of this truth, he's or not, of this statement. It's not of its truth, but it's this lie that we bought into, and it is the lie that says, if I just had, and then you fill in the blank with whatever it might be, if I just had this, then my heart would be content. 
If I just had this thing or that thing, or if these circumstances could just change, if I could just accomplish whatever it might be, then I could be content. What the enemy has done is it's a moving target, right? Because if you were a kid, and when I was a kid, it's if I could just get that legit pair of Air Jordan tennis shoes or the ones that had the little pumps on them, then I would be like the most cool guy in school and everyone would think I was great and then I would finally be happy. But after the Air Jordans came the pump-up tennis shoes, and then there was another thing. And then as I got older, there were other things. And every time I thought, if I can just get those, then I will be content. And yet over and over and over and over, upon attaining, achieving, accomplishing, or getting that thing, I found it to be empty and unsatisfying. Maybe for just a moment, it was like, oh, I've arrived. But then in the next moment, it was like, well, now what about the next thing? Today, I want to talk to you about contentment. It doesn't tend to be uh, an earnest desire for many of us in America. It doesn't seem to be th- something that we all are like, yes, I want to be content. Like, I want to strive f- toward that. And yet Paul wrote to the young man, Timothy. He said that godliness with contentment is great gain. What I believe about your life and what I believe about mine is that if we would walk in contentedness, if we could uh, begin to live this out in our lives and walk in this in our families, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our jobs, in our consumption, that it would indeed be great gain for us in our lives, that we would enjoy the more abundant life that Jesus Christ died on the cross that we might begin to live. And so today I want to share with you just a little bit about contentment. Before we begin... I want to ask you to take just a few moments to do some introspection. Think about your own life. How would you answer that question? And it might feel silly, but you just need to be honest, right? How would you answer the question, if I just had blank, then I would be content. Then my life would feel full. Then I would feel like I had arrived. If I just had blank, then I would be content. For many people, they think about their relationships. They think about their interactions with other people. Uh, Maybe if you're a young single person or maybe you're an old single person, maybe you're even a married person. And you're you're believing this that if, if you just had that relationship, if I could just find a spouse, if I could just find that person that God has for me that I could spend my life with, then my life would be complete. I would be full. I would be satisfied. Life would be good. And maybe you've been married for 20 years and you're believing if I could just get that other spouse, then maybe my life would be full and I would be satisfied and my life would be complete. For other people, uh, it's not necessarily uh, a romantic relationship, but for some of you, if I, could just, if I could just make my father proud, if I could just gain the approval of this group of people, If people would just praise me, if they would just approve of me, if they would just walk like in this life where I I seem to be acceptable in their eyes, then I would feel full and complete. So we do it in one area with relationships. Another one that we often pursue are possessions. We talked about this before a bit. If I could just get the house, if I could just get that car for my life, my tendency, if I could just get that shop, 
Amen. Any fellows out there, right? If I could just get a shop built and then I could get out of the garage and wouldn't have all my wife and kids stuff and I could work and get some things done, right? I think that would somehow be blissful as if the shop wouldn't fill up just as quickly as the garage did and all the, the closets in the house did, right? I mean, we, we believe these things. It's a possession. Then I could finally and fully be happy like the world would be correct because I, I have a shop, right? Maybe for you, it's like the clothes... It's the jewelry, it's the status that they might bring. For other people, it's not necessarily the relationships, approval, it's not status, it's not possessions. For some people, it's a change in our circumstances. If we could just make it through this diagnosis, then I could be content. If I could just get through this really, really difficult season with my kids then I'll be content. If I could just get the kids raised out of the house, then I will be content. I'll be free to go and do. Uh, for many of us, we, we live our lives always looking for the next thing. And so uh, we work our jobs always thinking, if I could just make it till vacation, then life will be good. And we're always looking for the next day off, the next thing. Maybe for you it's a promotion. Maybe for you it's the other side of this illness or diagnosis. And yet what Paul is going to teach us today is that we can be completely content in any and every circumstance. We can be content with an abundance of possessions or with almost no possessions. We can be content no matter what we might face, whether we're alone or whether we have lots and lots of friends, that we should pursue contentment. Now, the contentment, I want to define it for you here very briefly. It, it, to be content is just to be satisfied. It's where your soul stops striving. Your mind stops turning. You quit seeking after something else and you're simply satisfied with what you have. It's a feeling of satisfaction with one's relationships, possessions, or circumstances. To the opposite of contentment is to be dissatisfied. It comes from the belief that we need something that we do not yet have, that there's something missing from our life, that if we had that thing, then we would have enough. The problem, again, is that those things will never satisfy us. You and I and every person who's ever been created was made to have a relationship and to walk in communion with our Heavenly Father. To walk in, as Adam and Eve did with God in the garden, right? To have this ongoing relationship where we're not looking to the things of creation to satisfy this longing that we have for a relationship with our Creator, but we just look to Him. And He tells us who we are. He tells us what we're worth. He, he speaks to us. He leads us. He satisfies our soul, not with something in creation, but instead He satisfies our souls with Himself. If you've ever heard people say there's a, a God-shaped hole in your heart, this is, that's what they're describing here. You and I were made to commune with our Creator. And, and we, can, we can try as much as we want to, to fill that hole with other things of this world, other things in this life. But nothing will ever satisfy you like a relationship with God, walking and communing with Him. So in Philippians chapter 4, Paul is going to talk about, um, he's actually offering some gratitude because the, the Philippian believers who, man, they were living in some tough circumstances. 
being persecuted for their faith, people being beaten, others being thrown in prison. They, they had longed to help Paul out financially. They wanted to send him a gift of support. They supported him before, and they longed to do so again. They wanted their money to not sit on the sidelines. It's like not buy some more junk or whatever, but instead they wanted to invest in the work of the kingdom and seeing the, the kingdom of God expand. So they wanted to help Paul. So he says this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. He says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now... Now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So the Philippians, they, they helped Paul in the past. Their concern has now been revived. They desired to help him once again, but they, they literally lacked opportunity. I mean, just, just for the record, Paul was, he, he traveled a lot, right? Kind of hard to connect uh, with, with people when they're in motion. But not only that, Paul had been arrested, and since he'd appealed to Rome, they put him on a ship and began to sail toward Rome when, the, when there was a shipwreck, right? He ends up on an island. He's kind of stranded there. He got bitten by a snake. There were some circumstances going on in Paul's life that prohibited him from having kind of a direct relationship with the believers at Philippi. As a matter of fact, it was likely his imprisonment in Rome that kind of held him captive, in a sense, long enough that they could send someone to him. If you remember hearing about Epaphroditus, they sent Epaphroditus with this gift. And so Paul, he's grateful, he's rejoicing greatly in the Lord that at last they'd revived their concern for him. But before he spends too much time focusing on the gift, Paul wants to continue to teach them. He wants to lead them toward life. He wants to disciple these young believers who had come to faith in Christ but hadn't yet learned to fully walk in obedience to everything Jesus had commanded. And so then he, he turns from his rejoicing in verse 10. And in verse 11 he says, Not that I speak from want. Now, again, you, you think about his circumstances. He's in chains in a Roman prison. He talked about desiring to send Timothy to the Philippian believers because he didn't have anyone else who had uh, the same concern for the Philippian believers. That There were a lot of people out there preaching the gospel from envy and rivalry, but most people had kind of deserted Paul. He doesn't have a lot of help where he is. He's in a Roman prison in chains. He probably doesn't have the level of support. I'm guessing that the accommodations there were not terribly favorable, but he wants to point out to the Philippian believers that just because he's in a prison, just because it have a lot of people to help, a lot of people are around him, as a matter of fact, even though people are coming against him, wishing to do him harm, he says in verse 11, not that I speak from want. And I'm rejoicing that you sent this to me, not because I was you know, in, in a struggle here, not because uh, I, 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 finally I've received some kind of gift from you, but he says, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. Now, there's a couple of ways to look at that sentence. Um, one way to look at it is it says, I've learned to be content. All right, contentment, I've got this. Um, and then I just apply that lesson to every circumstance. No, no, no big deal. I, I've just learned to be content, and so no matter the circumstances, I'm good. But I don't think that's the sense of this sentence. 
I think what Paul is writing to them here is I've learned to be content in every circumstance that I've faced. Like every circumstance and every situation has been a new lesson in contentment. The Greek word here for learn is the Greek word manthano. It's where we get our, our word math. I don't know about if you know about math, but it, it requires some work. Like you can kind of have a knowledge of math, but every problem requires that you work it out in order to have a solution. You've kind of got to do the calculations. Now, many of us, when we think about the Christian life, we think I've come to faith in Christ and that God ought to download it all into my brain. I ought to kind of have it and then I can just live it out. That is not the way the Christian life works. We learn discipleship, how to follow Christ one step After the other, after the other, we continue in every circumstance to learn the things we need to learn. In every circumstance of your life, in the good times and in the bad, you kind of have to do the math. You have to spend the time, you have to work this out in your life that you might be content no matter the circumstance. Paul's saying, listen, I'm in a a Roman prison here. I'm chained to a soldier. I'm not free I don't, I don't have the great things that I might have enjoyed, but I've learned to be content in every single circumstance, whatever that may be. Church of Jesus Christ, that should be true of us as well. That no matter our circumstance in our life, we're content. We're satisfied. We're filled. We have enough. We're not believing that if we could just get through this, then life would be good. We're not believing we just get the next thing or improve our situation, then life would be good. But right here and right now, we ought to be walking in contentment. He he continues on in verse 12. He says, I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. Did you know that contentment looks different in each of those? You may have experienced that this when, when you were young and you didn't have anything. You might look back on those situations and think, man, life was so good. It was hard, but it was good. And for many of us, the reason we could think about more humble times or we're just like, how are we going to pay the next bill? How are we going to get through the next week? Like those humble times, we think about them with this level of joy and happiness because whether we recognize it or not, We were more content then than we are in a time of prosperity or plenty. Because you get a little bit of money in your pocket and you start thinking, hey, we can afford to do some things. We can fix up the house. We can get the car that, you know, we're confident is going to get us to work and back. And we we start to then long for the next thing. And our, our, our income or our prosperity affords us the opportunity to purchase things that we can subtly believe are going to satisfy us. And yet Paul would say contentment ought to be present in humble means and in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret. This thing that seems to be unknown to most people that Paul has learned, he's discerned through Christ. There's a secret. Most people don't know about it. I've learned this secret of being filled and of going hungry, of having abundance and suffering need. Now, Paul just took it another step further, didn't he? Because most of us think about contentment in terms of being full. It's it's what happens when uh, you move from a place of hunger before the meal to a place of uh, fullness or satisfaction after the meal, right? 
It's because your stomach is full. And yet what Paul is saying here, I learned the secret of being filled in the secret of still being hungry, of still being in need, and yet finding contentment there. The secret of having abundance and the secret of suffering need. To kind of lay this out for us, Paul was a guy who was well-traveled, he was well-studied, he was a Roman citizen, which would have likely cost him a small fortune to purchase. Paul had been in, in places with the elites, and now he finds himself in the lowest prison. He says, I've learned to be content in the palace and in the prison. I've learned the secret of being content in poverty or in prosperity. I've learned the secret of contentment, whether my stomach's full or whether I'm feeling the pangs of hunger. He's going to give us a really, really simple sentence. Maybe the most quoted, the most misunderstood verse in all the Bible. Paul says in Philippians 4.13, here's the secret. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. The source of contentment is Christ. Many of us, we seek contentment in the next thing, in the next relationship, the next person, the next promotion, the next success. Paul's like, you want to know how you can be content no matter what your circumstances are? You turn to the source of contentment in Christ he is the one that empowers this virtue to exist in our lives. It's pointing out that Christ alone is the one who satisfies our soul. He's saying, even if you're hungry, even if you find yourself in need of food, you're in the midst of suffering, you find yourself in a prison, what you don't necessarily need in order to be content is the next meal. You don't need your freedom from prison. You don't need your circumstances to change. You need to find satisfaction in Christ. That there is one thing that will satisfy the deepest longings of our souls that, that cause us to set out in search of all sorts of things that we might feel full and satisfied and content. The thing, the only thing that will satisfy the deepest longings of our souls is Christ. He empowers us to live lives of contentment. In Luke chapter 8, verse 13, Jesus gives a parable. Um, some people call it the parable of the sower, and other people call it the parable of the soils. And so Jesus begins to tell the parable of Luke chapter 8. He says, The sower went out, um, king of gods like a sower went out, and he scattered some seed on the path. That seed... Uh, it never takes root because the path is hard. It says that the, the birds, they come and they eat the seed before it has, ever has a chance to take root. The next one, he says, the next type of seed, it fell on the rocky places. And pretty quickly, it germinates, begins to sprout, puts down some really, really shallow roots. But because the soil was so shallow, um, quickly it withers. There's not enough moisture. There's not enough there uh, to support life. It withers and it dies. The third type of soil, he says, the sower is sowing. And man, the third type of seed, it lands on some pretty good soil. It's fertile. It has everything present. 
in which to grow and to thrive and to bear fruit. The third type of soil, though, there's, there's a problem. And it's not that it's missing something. It's that it has too many things. The disciples, in asking Jesus to explain the parable to them, he's like, oh, well, the first type, the first sower that sowed on the path, um, that's people who, before they have a chance to hear the gospel and respond, uh, the enemy comes and steals that away. Like, they never truly understand the gospel. Like, what about that second type of soil? It's like, oh, well, those are people who, who hear it at first. Man, they're, they're on fire for Jesus, but the moment temptation comes, they're like, no, 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 this is too much, and their faith withers. They don't seem to persist. Like, well, Jesus, tell us about that third type of soil. And the soil was good. Everything was present that he needed to, to grow. The fourth type of soil, by the way, that he talks about in the parable is, he says, the sower sows on this type of soil, and then the seed, it grows up, and it produces a harvest, like life and true abundance is found there. 30 or 60, 100 times what was sown is now produced in this type of soil. And so they're like, well, Jesus, you didn't tell us the problem with the, the third type, though. So what was missing there? It had all the nutrients and everything it needed to grow up and to produce this great return. And so, well, the problem with this type of soil is it had too much going on. Too many things present in the life. He talks specifically, he says, in, in this third type of soil, it springs up, takes root, it's well on its way, but then the worries of this life, desire for riches, seeking after pleasure, and other things grow up in that soil and they choke out the seed that was planted, the one that otherwise would have produced abundance. For Cross Community Church, I fear that it might be true of us. To be honest with you, it's been true of me. That we have every single thing we need in Christ Jesus to grow and to thrive, to put down deep roots, to produce an extraordinary harvest. But we're so busy pursuing so many other things that we've never learned the secret to contentment, to being satisfied. We've never truly learned to walk in the strength of Jesus Christ who sustains us in the midst of every single circumstance, who can give us joy in the midst of suffering, who gives us abundance in the midst of poverty. We're so busy chasing after the next thing Believing the lie that something is somehow missing from our lives, that if we just had that thing, all the pieces would come together, things would click, and then we could live in abundance. Church, we have everything we need for life and godliness, and it's found in Jesus Christ. You know, the number one thing I hear when we talk about here, uh, the six practices of a disciple, when we talk about any of those six practices, the first one, devoting daily, that's just spending time in the Word, in prayer, with Jesus Christ every day. 
The second one is it's gathering consistently with the body of Christ to be encouraged. The third is committing ourselves to community, walking through life with other people. It says we're going to be serious about following Jesus and I'm going to need your help along the way. So we're going to do this thing together. The, the fourth one is serving faithfully, like using the gifts that God has given you. Literally, you've been created for a purpose and been given all the gifts that you need to fulfill that purpose. The, the fifth one is to give sacrificially, like to, to see yourself as a steward that God didn't intend for all of His blessings to stop with you, but rather as the most wealthy nation that's ever existed in the history of the world, we ought to be caring for those who have far less than we do. The sixth one is that we would engage missionally. When I talk to people about the six practices of a disciple, living those out in their life, you know what the number one reason I get for why they can't do that? Hey, it's just really busy right now. I'm, I'm sorry I haven't been at church in a while. I got this going and that going, and, and, and I just can't seem to make it. And you know, I, I want to read the Word, but gosh, I can't seem to find time. Yeah, I want to live the life of disciples, spend time communing with God in prayer, but ooh, I've got stresses, I've got worries. Yeah, I wanted to serve. I know I've been gifted and called by God. I know that's my purpose in life, but um, I'm kind of busy. Hey, I want to give, but I bought so many things. I got so many payments. I can't afford to give anymore. Paul's speaking to those of us who might have bought the lie. If I just had this, then I would be satisfied. Then I would be content. Then my life could be full. Paul's like, hey, I want you to know something. What you're seeking has been with you the whole time. What your heart is truly longing for will never leave you nor forsake you. You want to know the secret of contentment? You want to know the secret of having your life satisfied and feeling like, hey, my life is in abundance. You want to know the secret of, of seeing your life reap a harvest? It's not found in chasing after the other things. It's found in changing what you seek it's not a change of your circumstances. It's not a change in your bank account. It's found in the change of what you seek after. Paul's like, seek after Christ. Seek satisfaction in Him. And prioritize this because if you don't, you will never be satisfied. He concludes in verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, You've done well to share with me in my affliction. What Paul is not telling the Philippian believers is that, you know, hey, I didn't need you to give because literally he, he talks about his affliction. As a matter of fact, the Philippians were God's manner of provision for Paul. Paul was, sac was satisfied in Christ. He's like, I've learned how to get along without. And yet at the same time, he's thankful that they've met his need. Y'all, we live in a world where poverty is all around us. And it's everywhere. And sometimes that poverty is physical. People who are in need. And around the globe, and there are kids that won't have a meal today. Parents who have to look their children in the eyes as they starve, unable to provide. All the while, the American church, to whom God has given much, 
We're busy buying the next thing. Chasing after the next attaboy. And we're not engaged. We're not living as the Philippian church and allowing ourselves to be a conduit through which God's blessing flows. But you know, there's a deeper kind of poverty too. And it's one that doesn't last for, you know, a lifetime. It's one that doesn't last for a season. It's one that lasts for an eternity. Church of Jesus Christ, the moment you walk out of these doors, you're going to stare into the eyes of men and women who are living in spiritual poverty. Their hearts are longing for something too. They're chasing after the satisfaction of their souls. They're longing for the abundant life, but they don't know the secret. They've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've never come to believe it. In the parable of the sower, the parable of the soils, it says the kingdom of God is like a man that goes out sowing, right? That seed that fell, that took root, that would ultimately grow up and produce a harvest, you know what it produces a harvest of? More seeds, right? That hopefully would then take root in somebody else's life and begin to, to grow up to maturity. And then there would be a, a harvest and there would be more seeds. And so the, the hope would be then that more and more and more people can live in these lives of abundance. Listen, your co-workers need the seed of the gospel in their life, but it has to be born in your life. Like for us, we got to look at the soil of our lives and be like, is there something choking out the work that God desires to do in me and through me? And we think, you know, I'm going to work every day and I'm living a pretty good life. Why? Why am I not seeing fruit born? Maybe it's because it's not being born in our lives yet. Maybe it's because we've been deceived by the enemy into believing that something else in our life is going to make us happy. And so while we talk about how important it might be to seek after Jesus Christ in the Word, in prayer, we're really just seeking after wealth. We have no time for the things of God because we're too busy chasing after the endless things that will never satisfy us. I believe that God wants to produce an extraordinary and an abundant harvest in your life, in your family, in your workplace. But what may precede that harvest in our lives may be what's kind of fitting for this season. It's a tilling of the soil. And it's, exam it's an examination of our lives to say, hey, what here is really fruitful? What here really matters? What here really brings satisfaction to my life? What here brings true abundance? And what is just here competing? You think about a garden, you think about soil. This is an ongoing thing that has to happen in our lives where we examine and say, what's competing, and what's bearing fruit. So today, my challenge for you is to spend the next few minutes just examining your heart, asking the Spirit of God to search you, to bring the things to mind that aren't bearing fruit in your life, that may be competing the things that you filled in the blank with, that will never lead to abundance, but might actually prevent it. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, 
as the people of God, we don't want to gather here and just hear another sermon. Lord, what we seek is to live lives that bring you honor and glory. Lord, what we seek is to obey you most fully. And God, for many of us to hear like, oh, just trust Jesus. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It feels almost trite. And God, that's because we bought a lie. Lord, we, we haven't sought you fully. God, you haven't had first place in our lives. There's been so many other things competing with what you desire to do. That our discipleship has been lackluster. Our pursuit has been shallow at best. The Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray that in this place, in our church, in this body, in our homes, that you might begin, begin to bear fruit in our lives. And as our lives bear fruit, that it would, it would drop off and that more seeds would spring up and the gospel would begin to spread across our community and in our homes and in our workplaces and our schools. God, that you would use us to be light in the midst of darkness. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.